This is Lifetime Sentence, the podcast where we watch bad Lifetime original movies and compare them to the truly heinous stories that inspired them. Because sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, you know, I looked at houses today because we're kind of pseudo house hunting. And then I did uh-huh. homework because I started new college classes today. Yay! Yay! I'm so proud of you. Right, well, I'm glad one of us is. Back to school. It's hard because, you know, I did my whole master's degree while I was teaching full time. It's hard to fit in school after you've been at school all day, especially because, mm-hmm. as you're well aware, sometimes I leave school at 630 or 7 at night after I got there at 630 in the morning. I know. So I'm just going to have to set boundaries this year. And this is the year that I'm taking time for myself and setting boundaries. So it's a good time to learn. Yay! Hashtag no doormat 2020. No doormat 2020. So how's your weekend been? Uh, in fact, uh, spoiler alert, I read your post on Facebook, so I know exactly how it's been, and I'm jealous. <laughs> well, um, my plan going into the weekend was to clean the house and do a lot of errands and just do a lot of things that need to be done. And instead, yesterday, I read three books. <laughs> I'm so and jealous. Today, I spent like 90 hours doing notes for this movie. Um, and went to the grocery store. And I have now two piles of laundry that need to be folded and put it away. Put it away. Put it away. Put it away. Put away. But I did do the dishes and the laundry, but nothing else is clean. So, you know, small victories. Cool. Yeah. Oh, also, I just want to take this moment to remind my friend Aaron Jones, who's sick right now, to go to the goddamn doctor. Go. Listen to your parents. I'm supposed to mom her and make her go to the doctor. So do it. Do you like how I included myself in her parenting? It's okay. Like me, like we're the parents. We are the parents. And for all of you who are feeling a little bad, go to the doctor. The flu is going around right now. You don't need that negativity in your life. For true. Go to the doctor. So the books that I was that I read over the weekend. Yeah, tell me. Um, well, I'm just going to tell you about one of them. But um, actually, no, I'll tell you about a few. So, A, if you have ever struggled with, like, anxiety, a breakup, anything like that, go read um, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Yes. Very, I've heard very, amazing things about very this book. book. Um, and then the other one that I really enjoyed was My Oxford Year by Julia Whelan. Okay, tell me about that one. So she goes to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, fiction. Okay. Um, so she goes and she meets a like her professor and they fall in love. And there's a little twist in the middle because they're both not going to get in a relationship, you know. Oh, naturally. They're just going to be friends with benefits and then something happens. And I won't give away the ending. But I will say there is a quote in here that has really stuck with me. Tell me, you know, I love a good quote. <sighs> so in the book, she works... Um, for a political campaign um and she's working for the campaign and she's like trying to decide whether she wants 
to um, stay on it. And it says being called upon to do something because you're good at it is not the same thing as having a calling. I needed to, like 16 year old Paul needed to hear that so badly. Yeah, I needed to hear that today. 25 year old Aaron. 25 year old Aaron. Plus or minus. Plus or minus 10 years. (laughs) I've had a lot of birthdays. (laughs) Well, last I knew you were only 23, so. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been doing the struggle. And so it's something to continue to mull over. That is. We go into this year. That is a feeling that. That is a, a concept that I really struggled with understanding leading up to my switch into teaching English. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I was a very good musician. I still am. And I still enjoy performing from time to time, but um, mm-hmm. you know, it can't ever be my life again. And, um, but you know, 16 year old Paul had prospects of going to college on a music scholarship and everyone told me that I was very good and, you know, I made the National Honor Orchestra. Like, I did have all these things that told me I was very good. If at any point somebody had set me down and was like, hey, you don't have to do this. There are other options. Like, Mm -hmm. you love English or maybe you should pursue law because that was the thing that I realized halfway through college I really wanted to do. Like, Like, maybe anybody could have said just because you're good at it doesn't mean you have to make it your life. And I would have endured a lot less stress and depression in my life. Well, you know, I got into what I do now, which is insurance, to pay the bills. And I'm good. I'm really good at what I do. I don't want to chew my own horn. I'm really good at what I do. But I'm like, as I'm getting older and my son is fixing to like graduate and move on and things are kind of like settling, I'm really, I'm like, do I, is this, do I want to work for a corporation for the rest of my life or do I want to do something else? Well, I have the answer to that. And, um, <laughs> lifetime sentence as your full-time job 2021. Yeah. Please join our Patreon and send us money so I can do that. <laughs> it does well, not pay the bills right now, but it could. I started writing again this week, too. I saw that. I started writing a memoir this weekend. Oh, um, it just... So mine is fiction, like based on um, the youth group that I grew up in, and it uh, the idea that I had had was more like gossip girl comedy, like kind of or drop like drama dramedy kind of, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but what I'm getting so far is very like introspective and sad, but I'm not mad about it. Okay, we'll see what happens. Well, I'm really excited that you're writing again. I know it's been a long, long time. And, um, it was nice, you know, like after, and I've mentioned this before, I'm sure that after my, you know, round and round and round trying to get published, um, the last time I was told no was such a hard blow that like, I really have taken a break from all things creative. Really. Um, I used to write music and I used to do all those things and it's nice to be getting myself back. And it sucks that it took so long, but I'm glad to be me again in the sense that I am a creative person who likes to paint and sing and dance and whatever I want to do. Like I've, I would have been a great hippie in so far as very free spirit, but I really love deodorant. So yeah, I am also a hippie who loves showers. So (laughs) 
I'm working on it. We'll see what happens. Um, like, yeah. I feel I feel like the, the possibilities are kind of endless at this point. I enjoy this idea of like starting out with what we're reading. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just every so often give an update because that is nice. Uh, I have been reading. Um, well, I told you I was reading the um, the blessing of a skinned knee. It's Jewish wisdom for parenting, which I'm not a parent, but it has been actually really nice to see like this child psychologist a saying that the things I'm doing in my classroom are fine, but b all the ways that Sarah and I have talked about raising kids, we're going to be okay. You know, like that's good. Um, also, I think it's so funny, like you know, just the. Uh... Oh, the tropes about Jewish mothers, like uh-huh. <laughs> uh, just reading a parent of Jewish parenting book is just funny to me, just because of, you know, the tropes. And of course, while those are probably based in a tiny bit of fact, they're probably not entirely true. So, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also reading um, a book called Happy Teachers Change the World. And it's about including mindfulness in your daily practice and setting those boundaries that I was just saying, I've got to learn how to set for myself. And, um, and how to include mindfulness in like your classroom so that your students learn to be mindful and to kind of incorporate some like meditational approach to the way that you teach, um, which I think will be really nice. So we're both in a good headspace right now. You really are. I told you 2020 was our year of positivity. So you want to bring it down? I would love to bring it down. But first of all, (laughs) this is lifetime sentence. And I'm Barbara Walters. <laughs> I'm, does that make me Hugh, Hugh Downs? Obviously. <laughs> Genius. So do you remember when our podcast was just remember? a tiny baby? And we just had a little baby podcast and we covered a movie about Victoria Gotti and her father, John Gotti. I, and I was like, I was like, oh, he's such a good dad. I really like him. And then you were like, no, he's also a murderer. And you broke my heart. Uh-huh. Well, the good news is you won't have to do that again. <laughs> he's not a good person in this movie at all. Good. Good. <laughs> um, I oh. also, I will never forget that episode. As I mentioned in our year in review last year, that episode was the hardest one for me to edit of all time. And clips of it play in literal nightmares of mine. So when I'm old and demented and in the home and you're having to come visit me and I don't know anyone's name, I will still remember editing that episode. I'm just going to lean down and whisper in your ear. It's Carmine. It's Carmine. (laughs) (laughs) One eye will twitch. I will get out of that wheelchair and I will beat you to death. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, so I went back and like listened to, to my part on that and I was like, Wow, my opinions are different this go around. <laughs> um, today I watched Getting Gaudy. This is an old one. It was released in two thousand. Wow! So it's twenty rife years with, old. Yeah, and it's rife with like thinly veiled racism against Italians and um, not okay. Lifetime. Very heavy accents. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> it was great. So it starred um, Lorraine Bracco. She plays Diane Jack- Giacalone. Okay. 
Um, she was in Goodfellas, The Sopranos, Medicine Man, The Basketball Diaries. I'm like, we're starting off on a good foot here. So they were like, is she the only Italian actress? And so they just have cast her in everything, like, in the world? Yeah. Um, Tony Dennison, he plays John Gotti. He was in The Closer, uh, Men of War, and Prison Break. Okay. August Schellenberg, he plays Willy Boy. That's a that's a name, unfortunately. Which is ironic because he was in Free Willy. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was also in um, Black Robe and the New World. He plays a lot of roles where he plays like um, oh, a Native man. American. What happened? I just got an email. Remember back in the old days, whenever we would get emails mm-hmm. and I couldn't edit them out. I don't know yeah. that I'm going to edit this one out, but I just can't close my email so that it won't make any more noise. That's fine. Anyways, he plays a lot of like Native American roles in movies. Okay. And finally, for no reason except that I love her and she's in one of my favorite movies of all time, Ellen Burstyn. She plays um, Diane's mom. She was in Requiem for a Dream, The Exorcist, and my one of my personal all-time favorite movies, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. She is. Mm-hmm. Oh, then it's going to be a good movie today. Oh, it, oh, it's going to be a good movie today. Staten Island, 1983. Oh, that we was opened, a good year. Yeah, that was, that was the year I was born, minus 10 years. Right, so. right. It was, you meant <laughs> to say that was 10 years before you were born. That was 10 years before I was born, yes. Right. Um, we open in a bar and three goons walk in and say that they're the police there to arrest a drunk guy. The drunk guy isn't so drunk to realize that he's de- these are definitely not the police. It's John Gotti and company. Um, they get into a fight. One of Gotti's goons shoots the drunk guy and Gotti spits on him. And I was like, man, I know it's the 80s, but DNA, man. <laughs> right. And then... Um, Back in what I can consider, they leave. So back in what I can only assume is the mob's fraternity house. Yep. Gotti arrives at ritual night. (laughs) Dressed in all white. Everyone's holding candles. So this is probably a more serious ritual. You rest out the candles. It's Boone's farm. (laughs) (laughs) He kneels before the chapter president, who is very sick and coughs all over him. (laughs) But he's like, I'm going to be totes fine. No big deal. That's the new initiation they, ritual. They reveal the fraternity secrets, cut his finger, say a bunch of stuff in Latin. The only thing I recognize is Cosa Nostra, like the whole thing. Um, Gaudi recognizes Paul Castellano as their leader, and they all chant, may he live forever. That's he not pledges, how that works. He pledges to live by the gun and die by the knife. And now he's an official member of Capasig. <laughs> I mean them up. <laughs> this scene was intercut with Diane Giacalone taking her oath as an assistant U.S. attorney. That initiation ritual had far fewer candles and promises to die, though, so I'm not going to cover it. Um, Diane I goes like to the, work. Um, juxtaposition of that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it was good. Diane goes to work and is greeted by the world's most annoying administrative assistant, who tells her where her office is, gives her a manila envelope with, quote, everything she needs except the key to the bathroom, which is at the front desk. 
if she doesn't return the key to the bathroom after she uses the bathroom, she will lose her bathroom privileges. I'm sorry. What the fuck kind of office is this that you have to get a key to the bathroom? Like, it's not the 7-Eleven. This is the U.S. Attorney's Office. (laughs) I put it. It's nice to know that people everywhere are micromanaged to death. Right. Diane goes to her office, which is littered with files. Um, Her neighbor, Cassie, comes over to say, there's been no mistake. All those files are really just her cases. Um, And Cassie happens to have two more. Welcome to work. Yay. Back under the cover of darkness, Gotti and co. arrive in an alley. Sinister choir music plays, so I'm assuming whatever is about to happen is not great. They're at church. (laughs) More fraternity rituals. (laughs) (laughs) They pull on ski masks and ambush the truck driver, who does not look at all startled by the fact that someone just jumped into his truck window with a gun. Well, yeah. He's like, oh, this happens a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they, oh, they robbed the truck. (laughs) No, I did Uh, not see that coming. No, I know. (laughs) Diana's off living her life, walking past cafes, looking at guys playing dominoes. She hugs a shop owner who gestures across the street to um, Gotti's club where the suited up goons are bumming around outside. And he asks if they're going to she's going to put him in jail now that she's a big time lawyer. She says she will if they break the law. And the guy replies, they're scum. That John Gotti, the big cheese they've got over there now. He's scum. Yes. (laughs) Big cheese. Um, you gotta put him away. And then he shouts across the st- street, these punks, they don't respect nothing. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield guys... himself walked on this set. Yeah. Um, the guys across the street shout back, oh, hey, oh. <laughs> oh, God, it's terrible. Um, Diane walks right across the street past the suited jokers who catcall her. Naturally. Charming. And I just want to know, like, if you are a man or maybe a woman who's ever catcalled someone in the street, a stranger, and they have turned around and gone home with you, send me an email about that experience because I need to know. We've now been married eight and a half years. We own a house together. (laughs) (laughs) All it took was me saying, hey, baby, and then pinching her ass when she was close enough to reach. She would have slapped you so silly. I, I would be still dead. Be out. <laughs> I'd be dead and no one would find the body. <laughs> um, uh, Paul and John come out of the building. After Paul takes off, John turns to pledge dad, um, Neil, and says that Paul's always on his back and it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, man, micromanaging really is the great equalizer in the world. Um John whines that he misses Carlo Gambino and Pledge Dad is like, well, he's dead and he left Paul in charge. Nothing to do about it. But John storms back inside. So maybe he's going to do something about it. He's going to write nationals. (laughs) Oh, he goes back into his office and starts breaking things like well-adjusted adults do. Same thing as writing nationals. And he screams that he doesn't care what that stupid guinea says. He'll run this place any place, any way he wants. I'm like, ooh. Everyone is super quiet. And suddenly, like, John turns around. He's like, what's the matter? Why is everybody so serious? Let's go get some clams. 
And I was like, okay, so you're bipolar for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, and we cut to a guy standing in front of an oven eating directly out of a pot and double dipping. This really is a frat house. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Diane's family's house and everyone is singing opera and dancing around the kitchen. This is actually charming. Um, nearby on a dark rooftop, three dudes are sitting in uh, a car chatting like you do. Wait, they're in a car on a rooftop? Yeah. Like at the top of a parking garage? Yeah. I pictured like a townhouse. And, like <laughs> They're just parked on the roof. Yes. <laughs> Nice. It's not the Weasley's house. Um, so it's John's friend. Oh, it's uh, Willy Wonka. Willy boy. <laughs> Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, he's talking to the FBI. They ask him if Gotti's goons did the job with the guy in the truck earlier. He's like, nah, that must have been some other guy. So he's like half informant, half protecting the mob. And I wonder if that means he'll only get half shot in the head when they catch him snitching. Spoiler alert, no. Yeah. (laughs) An armored car pulls up to another warehouse and a guy jumps out of the front seat with two bags of money and heads inside. And I'm like, wait, don't they keep that money in the back? Like, why? Isn't it locked up? You just grab it and go? In the armored truck? Yeah. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Armor's for show. Inside, um, the only protection they have is a chihuahua, because that's all they can afford. Yeah. And a water a shady, pistol. A shady-looking dude in a baseball cap walks up and casually throws a grenade under the vehicle. The if driver's I a dollar like, for every time that happened to me. The driver's like, fuck that, and runs off, so the guy and his friends steal the truck. Um... The guy's name is Dia, Dio, I don't know. He takes it. The he takes money to Gotti, and he's like, "Here, I got you a present." Uh, John smiles at first, but then gets mad because he saw the heist on the news, and there were seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the truck, not the measly, paltry twenty grand that this guy just brought him. Ooh, he's so, got receipts. So they beat him up. Um, Cut to a dance club full of mobsters, and nothing says class like statues that glow under a black light. Damn, this sounds like a party. The armored car robber, Dio, is with a date and a friend frantically discussing how he needs the rest of that money or Gotti is for sure, like, gonna kill him. Um, another girl comes storming in the club, accusing him of cheating on her, which he's literally sitting next to another girl, so... Um, she says she's either going to call Gotti or call the police and rat him out. So he beats her up in the middle of the club and nobody does anything about it. That checks out. Diane takes her mother to dialysis and then goes to work. A detective shows up to ask her about the armored truck case because Dio, the guy that they suspect of doing it, he also thinks killed his girlfriend. The girl from the club. Okay. Diane directs him back to the DA's office, but he says they won't take the case. Um, She's like, oh, well, I also won't take it. Um, And then he's like, okay, well, just another girl that died in something park. And this gets her attention because it's her neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Hold on. I can tell you the name of that park. 
It was huh. a weird park. It was a weird name. I've got it in my notes, like page six-ish. <laughs> I want Tagati. Oh, this is I, I I don't know why I'm fixated on this, but it's now important to me. It's fine. Um, let's see. Ozone Park. Yes, that was it. I was like Galaxy something. Yeah, Ozone Park. Um. So she's like, okay, why don't you buy me lunch and we'll talk about it. Um, so they go to lunch and he tells her like all about the mob in the area, but she already knows because it's like her neighborhood. Right. She tells him, he's like, how did you not get sucked into this lifestyle? And she says, really, the only reason is because her mother would have kicked her quote behind. Oh, good. Good. We're using adult words. Yeah. The detective explains the murder case, but there's a teensy tiny little problem. Oh, uh, let me guess. Um... Let me think of a good one. They're all out of toilet paper in that locked bathroom. <laughs> There's no body. He says he knows she's dead and he knows that, quote, slime ball did it. But his boss won't let him work the case any further until he gets a prosecutor on board. Because nobody, no proof. Yep. So she's like, yeah. Let's do it. So the detective starts following Dio around. He doesn't talk to him. He just follows him. And it totally drives him fucking insane. He yes. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in the meantime, they figure out who his friend was in the bar that night and track him down. He's conveniently holding a bag of heroin that he just purchased. So they arrest him. God, I hate when I get arrested the minute I buy heroin. I know. After they let him go, uh, Dio shoots him, even though he swears he didn't talk. So at this point, he survives, and he does what any normal person in that situation would do. He runs to the attorney's office and sings like a canary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Diane goes to meet with Detective and his friends from other precincts, as well as the FBI, the DA's office... And the postal inspectors. Oh, or gang's all here. Yeah. Um, they are going to work together to make a monumental case against the Gambino family. I had to pause here and take notes, and I swear, I swear, I swear, Dennis Franz is in the background of this scene. Okay. It's not on his IMDb. It's not on this movie's IMDb, but I saw what I saw. <laughs> He's from NYPD Blue. Just gotcha. I had no idea yeah. who he was, so I was like, "Great." Oh, he was for, he was from NYPD Blue. He was like he was the main character on that show. Gotcha. Um, so it makes sense that he would like be in this. I don't know. Right. Make a cameo. She says that these guys are all connected through John Gotti, and she says she needs every piece of paper. She like gives him a list and says she needs every piece of paper with their name on it from each of their offices. The guy from the FBI complains that what she's asking for will take too long. And she's like, oh, excuse me. Perhaps I'm speaking to the wrong people to get this done for me. <laughs> I was like, yes, girl. She is a badass. I can't wait to do Oh, that yeah. Um, Detective also stands up and defends her, saying that Diane busts her butt for them, and it's time they did some work for her. And I was like, yes, Detective. Um, Thrilled, like, ugh, fine, whatever. Over at John's office, he's yelling at his employees? Friends? Associates. Associates, sure. Um, which he does quite a bit. So his goons go destroy a deli and beat up the owner. 
And they get some of that cheese that he likes while they're there. Oh, good. The good Gouda. Jesus. Um, John stays at the office and meets with Sammy the Bull. They take a walk and talk about whether or not to go to get into, like, the drug business. Um, Sammy also tells him that, quote, word on the street is some bitch in the U.S. attorney's office is out to get you. Yeah, see? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says her name is uh, Jack and... I can't ever say this. Jackaloni? Jackaloni, thank you. And Gotti says, quote, 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 an Italian broad is trying to burn me? <laughs> Can you do the rest of this show in that accent? I, it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, so it's Christmas time. Diane's niece is in a Christmas pageant. Adorable. But Diane has to duck out right after because the bazaar, like the fair, whatever, is sponsored by Gotti. And so it's not a good look for her to be there. As she's leaving, who approaches her with a teddy bear for her niece? Ed McMahon with a giant check. No. It's, it's John Gotti. No. <laughs> it's Carmine. <laughs> uh, it's John Gotti. Um, she's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> Thanks, so. I forgot I already have one. <laughs> and this lady who's standing behind him um, says, quote, what's the matter? You think you're too good for him? John Gotti is a hero. <laughs> sure, Jan. Um, so she and Gotti have a little standoff and then she leaves. The FBI pulls out of Diane's investigation because there are a bunch of fucking whiners. Yep. Um, she says to her group, anyone else who wants to leave can, and anyone who wants to stay can stay. And they all one by one stand up and say that they're with her. It's very cute. Oh. And then they, um, and then so at the end she's like, all right, let's get Gotti. And they all cheer. Did they come up with a handshake? Oh, no, but they did all, like, slap fives and stuff. So. Of course they did. Did I, mean, I ever tell you about a book that I read my students where they used to call it slam hands instead of high five? They say, we slammed hands. And so now when my students come every day, they go slam hands and give me a high five. <laughs> that sounds a little bit dirty. Um, uh, and we cut to Diane meeting with her boss and some loser from the FBI who wants uh, Willy Wonka dropped from the uh, indictment because he's an informant. Diane rips the guy a new asshole for basically giving this dude like a license to walk around and do whatever the fuck he wants. Um, uh, the FBI guy stands up and he says, if I wasn't a gentleman, I'd punch your lights out. <laughs> and she stands up and stands nose to nose with him and says, give it a try. <laughs> This really happened. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh -huh. Shut up. This girl is a boss ass bitch. Yep. Um, her boss like kicks her out and we cut to Gotti who's yelling at everyone about a very disturbing phone call he received that he may be in trouble. He starts asking if any of them could be a snitch. The snitch, Willy Wonka, immediately stands up and says he's for sure not the snitch. <laughs> Gotti says he does the like elementary school thing. Whoever smelt it dealt it. I think it's you, John Gotti. Uh -huh. <laughs> Gotti says he walks up like right up to him and he's like, "I think you've been meeting with the FBI." And, and then the they break like, out into a show tune. Yeah, and the guy's like, "No, that's a lie." 
and Gotti like walks around behind him and I'm like, oh shit, this guy's going to get murdered right now. <laughs> but he walks around behind him and he goes, um, he says, man, what is this world coming to when you can't even trust the FBI and they hug? Uh-uh. <laughs> Um, and then I'm sure this guy needed to shower and change his clothes. Cause right. Um, Willy Wonka is sufficiently spooked. So he refuses to talk to Diane and um, the detective. The Brooklyn PD calls Diane because they picked up some guy for murder who says he has mob information. Um, she tippy taps on the computer to see who this guy is. And then tells the guy on the phone not to move and not to let the suspect move because quote, the next sound you're going to hear is me breaking Mach 2. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> the dialogue in this movie was superb. Um, she interviews the suspect who says John Gotti is the finest man he knows. And Diana's like, great. Um, that won't get him in jail and won't get you a reduced sentence. So I'm going to like, peace out. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, listen, um, I forgot. I already knew that. Bye. Yeah. He says he can get her Gotti. And she says, if he talks, and he gets her gaudy. He gets immunity. But if he lies, she'll make sure he disappears in the system. He, he stands up. He's like, you're a real tough bitch. Um, and she's like, well, you really know how to charm a girl. And then she slides the tape recorder over and he starts talking. Nice. And he starts with the story of what happened in the bar at the beginning of this movie. While he voiceovers uh, the story, we see the arrest of Gaudi and his crew. Um, Diane's under protection now because you know the mob. Um, but the F, like the two dumb FBI guys are there for like I don't know forty minutes, and she's like, "Y'all gotta go!" Like, <laughs> so they make her sign a release that if they leave and she gets killed, it's not their fault. Um, like, can you just sign? She's this? like, "Cool, bye." Um, sign your X on the so... line real quick. Hmm. They're like, "Sign your X on this line real quick." We're just yeah. So, council meets to talk about the case. Um, meanwhile, old Neil, the middleman between uh, Castellano and Gotti, dies. The one, the coughing guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, this funeral scene looks like a casting call for The Godfather 27. Perfect. Um, that's what one they're on now, right? I think, I think that's about right. Okay. John refuses to speak to Castellano, which seems like a stupid idea. Um, Castellano and Gotti stare into each other's eyes during the funeral while his friend next to him is like, I'm sorry, are you fucking crazy? Like, Must what are you doing? True love, <laughs> true love. We cut to more sinister choir music. Castellano is in a car that pulls up to Sparks Steakhouse in Midtown. Um, one of Gotti's guys, uh, Willy Wonka, um, shoots Castellano. Bada bing, bada boom. He's dead. Uh, Diane's family talks about it over Christmas dinner, but she can't discuss the case. Her mom laments about how they they killed him nine days before Christmas. What a shame. (laughs) (laughs) Diane and her brother get into a fight about how there will always be a mob, and she's really just fighting a losing battle. So Diane storms out of the house, and the mother goes, See, I make a nice dinner, and look what happens. (laughs) Which I just picture Fran saying that. That's exactly what I was about to say. Diane calls her mom later, um, who encourages her to go after him and, like, kick his ass, whatever. Outside Gotti's club, his driver gets into the car while Gotti uh, locks the door. When the driver starts the car, it explodes. 
Naturally. Um, what else did you the, expect to happen? The judge is real sick of everybody's shit. So he calls Gotti and Co. back to jail and revokes their bail since clearly they could not be left to their own devices. <laughs> but then he gives them 72 hours to report back to jail. And I'm like, do you know how much can happen in 72 hours? Right. He's like, listen, um, I need you to come back immediately after three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Johnny goes to jail. He tells Sammy to buy him a jury no matter what it costs. He does not care. Uh, Diane is walking home and the sinister choir music starts. So I don't like that. Um, I like the idea of buying a jury like a present. Like they're just like wrapped up and brought to him. <laughs> she starts her car and it doesn't explode though. So yay. But she is being followed. So not yay. Um, That's the opposite of yay. So she speeds down a side street, um, but they follow. She hits a bunch of boxes in an alleyway and she's stuck. The car pulls in behind her and two dudes get out of the car. So she throws her car into reverse and speeds backwards. She barely misses hitting them and hits their car. And the two dumbest faces appear in her window. And it's the two FBI protection dum-dums she kicked out of her house earlier. Uh -uh. (laughs) These two literally are like dumbfounded at what is happening. And she gets out she screams what are you doing and they're like we're following you (laughs) it was the best part of the whole movie (laughs) is that your edit of the week that is my edit of the week it's not an edit it was just hysterical (laughs) their faces were so dumb they look like little little kids (laughs) like it was so funny um so she yells at them um trial time it's now 1986 the defense attorney calls Diane this woman, which is not the worst thing he's going to say during this trial. I was going to say, I've got some news for you. Hmm. So I already hate him. Uh, I swear they called him directly from the set of Scarface and didn't let him change his costume first. He, yeah. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> um, he says, quote, this indictment stinks. It stinks, I tell ya. And then he throws it in the garbage. Good. <laughs> And all of Gotti's buddies give him high fives and a standing ovation. This trial <laughs> sounds like it was a fucking circus. They're like A plus monologue. That's why we're paying the good bucks. Yes. <laughs> the good the bucks, jury, the big bucks. The jury's walking out at the end of the day. So Sammy goes on his quest to buy them off. He talks to the foreman and gives him a number of like what they will give him to um, sway the jury. Then he gives him a pocket square and says if he takes the deal, to wear it. Someone calls Diane from prison to say he has a story, so she goes to see him. And this guy makes Hannibal Lecter look like a delightful dinner companion. Wonderful. He's fucking scary. <laughs> um, so they are, um, but she, so she's like, cool, thanks for the info, bye. Um, so they are at trial, and these fucking idiots never stop talking. It, it's like they're at intermission the whole like the the trial's going on and they're just like chatting it up like in the background like they're at buffalo wild wings like this thing sounds like it was a a freaking circus for real um they call diana bitch in the middle of the courtroom beautiful um the judge tells their attorney to make them knock it off but won't say like that in front of the jury he will just say it to them 
uh-uh. in chambers or whatever. Uh-uh. The administrative assistant with the bathroom key forgets to order Diane her lunch and she loses her shit. Amazing. This is the breaking point for Diane. She's yes. putting up with all your bullshit. You can't. You want her Chinese chicken fucking salad. <laughs> Meanwhile, the mob team is having a family styled catered meal in the courtroom. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm so done. Um. So the trial goes on, and I already know he's going to get away with it. But you know, uh, the sinister choir music plays over witnesses talking. The lawyers arguing with the judge. Gotti's stupid face. Um, they interview the guy that originally got the case going, and then Gotti's lawyer takes it all apart and calls Diana slut in open court. Wonderful. Um, court is adjourned, and Diane storms out and then stays up all night crying and working on what I assume is her mob burn book. <laughs> she. She has a pink book and it just says this girl is a fugly slut. And then she signs it from John Gotti and puts her own picture in it. (laughs) Um, They call Hannibal to the stand um, who outright lies about what's been going on. He for real says what had happened was. Yes. Um, And then he implies that he and Diane hooked up and she gave him her panties. Oh man. Um, good news is the real story is even better uh i was like sure jan (laughs) diane totally tears him apart on the stand um while gaudy and his friends shout objections and i'm like what is happening you don't get like when you're the defendant you sit silently (laughs) did you ever have the like assholes in high school who'd heckle the teacher oh god that's what this sounds like is like all the cool kids Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and then they send Hannibal a nutbag like back to hell where he came from. Um, closing arguments. And they talk about how this trial has been going on for six months. And I need someone to buy me off the jury at that point, too. To be <laughs> because I I can't pay the rent on what they pay jurors. Um, um, and I didn't realize the defendant was just allowed to say whatever he wants in court because he just interjects like at times and yeah, like he just his own stuff. closing statements throughout the entire thing you didn't know mm. at home her brother teases her about keeping her panties in her office drawer and he like he really is just teasing but she like completely breaks down and like beats the crap out of him which i would too he deserves he was like damn i was just kidding i'm really sorry <laughs> um it's verdict I day said JK. And- yeah it's verdict day and the sinister choir music play. Everything happens in slow-mo, so you know this is serious. The judge says, will the defendants please rise? <laughs> oh, God. This is one of those cases where they like they didn't know how to fill the last five minutes, so they just played mm-hmm. it in slow-mo. And the foreman stands up. Throughout the trial, they would sh- zoom in on his, uh, his jacket pocket to uh-huh. see if he was wearing the... Um, uh, pocket square pocket square thank you he stands up he's still not wearing it and i was like okay like i know how this trial turned out so i was like right okay um he reads the verdict they find everybody not guilty the frat bro- bros immediately burst into song and the foreman reaches into his pocket and pulls up the square uh-uh, what an ass hat yeah dun 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 
Gotti basically flips Diane off on his way out of the courtroom. She goes back to her office and the administrative assistant forgot to get beer. And I guess she's terrified of Diane now after her little outburst about the salad. <laughs> because she's like, I'll go right now. I'm so sorry. I'm the worst. I'm so sorry. I'll be right back. <laughs> but Diane's like, no, it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Uh, the detective runs in because the hot goss all over the building is that the jury was super paid off. Um, no way. Everyone's super happy about this development except Diane. She says at first she doesn't believe it. She spent seven years working on this case. And if the jury was fixed, it was a complete waste of her time the whole time. Um, she tells detective that somebody will nail Gotti someday because he's stupid and arrogant. Um, she says the case was the system versus the streets. And if they bought the jury, the street won and the people lost. Um, then she walks out. And instead of ending text this week, we get an ending voiceover, Ooh. which is a nice shakeup. Quote, in May of 1992, largely on the testimony of government witness Sammy the Bull Gravano, John Gotti was convicted of multiple crimes. He is currently serving a life sentence in the federal prison at Marion, Illinois. The foreman of the 1987 jury, which acquitted him, was indicted and convicted of accepting a $65,000 bribe. Shit. <clears throat> Harvey Sanders, a.k.a. Hannibal Nutbag, was found guilty of perjury. In 1988, w Wilford Willie Boy Johnson, the defendant and FBI informant, having refused federal protection, was murdered. Diane Giacalone, right? Yes. Moved to the political corruption unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and in 1990, she left public service. The end. Golly. That sounds like a good movie, though. It was. It, I like the old movies. I think they're really interesting. Well, and they often sound like they were better acted than the ones that you watch. Like, like most recent, they've had good ones because they can afford good actors and actresses again. But like, 06 to 2012 were rough. It was a hot mess. All right. Well, would you like to hear my, yes, seven pages of notes? Yes, I would. All right. At the top, um, my sources were good old Wikipedia. Um... And today I'm kind of shaking it up a little bit since I have already covered John Gotti and I didn't know what angle I was going to go with. Um, so yeah. instead I'm kind of doing a little bit of history before John Gotti and leading into him. So um, the Wikipedia articles for the five families, for the Castellamarie's War, the Gambino crime family, and then um, in the Virginia Law Archives, I found a an article called The Mafia's Teflon Don, John Gotti, on Trial. Uh-huh. Um, I read a part of a book called The Mafia Encyclopedia by Carl Sifakis. Sure. And Nailed then it. an AP News article called Crime, A Way of Life for Gotti, Prosecutor Says, by Edward Frost. Okay. So, a little bit of history about the five families. Um, the five families are the five major New York City organized crime families of the Italian-American Mafia. The mm -hmm. term was first used in 1931 when Salvatore Maranzano uh, formally organized the previously warring gangs into what are now known as the Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese crime families. Okay. Um, the crime families originated out of New York City Sicilian Mafia gangs. Mm -hmm. um, and then they were formally organized in the summer of 1931 after the April 15th murder of uh, Giuseppe Masseria 
in what has now become known as the Castellamarese War. Maranzano introduced the now familiar mafia hierarchy, um, which is the boss. Um, and I've got the Italian terms, but there's one that I'm so unsure of that I'm just not going to use any of them. Okay. Um, but so they have the boss, the underboss, the advisor, the captain, the soldier, and associate. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on top of all of that, he declared himself the capo de tutti capi, which is the boss of all bosses. And your eyes tell me so you this know it's a exactly- cult. Uh huh. This is a cult, and he's Jesus. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, the Castella Marie's War was a bloody power struggle for control of the Italian American Mafia from February nineteen thirty to April fifteenth, nineteen thirty one. Um, and it took cl- took place between um the partisans of Joe Masseria, who is known as the Boss. And then um, those of on the side of Salvatore Maranzano. Um, and the war was named after the Sicilian town of Castellamare del Golfo, which is the birthplace of Maranzano. Okay. So in the 1920s, mafia operations in the U.S. were controlled by Giuseppe the Boss Masseria, whose faction consisted mainly of gangsters from Sicily and the Calabria and Campania regions of southern Italy. Um, his faction included people who would become later much more important, um, such as Charles Lucky Luciano, Albert Mad Hatter Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Alfred Mineo, Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Frank Costello. So Ooh. all of the Italians are really proud of my pronunciation where I just let all my Kilgore show through and I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, at one point, Sicilian mafioso Don Vito Ferro decided to try to make a bid for control of the mafia operations. So he sent, um, from Castellamare del Golfo, he sent Salvatore Maranzano to seize control from Masseria. Um, so he's like moving the pieces of the chess board from across the sea and making a play for America. So the, um, the Castellamarese faction in the U.S. included Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep, he was known as Joe Bananas. Stefano the Undertaker Magadino. Joseph Profaci, Profaci, sorry. And Joe... He doesn't have a cool wrestling nickname? Uh-uh. <laughs> so far, this just sounds like the WWE. Right? And Joe Aiello. Um, as it became more and more evident that the two factions would clash for leadership of the mafia, they each sought to recruit more followers to support them. So this is when we really start to see the gangs like start to grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And when they started to kind of loosen the reins on who could be in the mafia because mm-hmm. it was for a long time and then has since gone back to you had to be Italian born. Right. Um, but when they were like fighting so hard to be able to fight this war and create their factions they were just recruiting whoever they could well uh what's his butt willy wonka he says um to the fbi he's like they ask him like why do you talk to us and he says because i'm not italian and they protect each other they don't protect me yeah so um outwardly the war was between the forces of masseria and maranzano 
However, underneath there was a generational conflict between uh, the boomers and the and the millennials, um, also known as the mustache peats. They were the old generation. <laughs> You're welcome. This sounds like a barbershop quartet. <laughs> the mustache peats were called so because they had long mustaches and old world ways. So Pete is clearly the old world in that, I guess. Question mark. Mm. Um, they refused to do business with non-Italians, among other things. That was the biggest thing that the younger generation hated. And so okay. the younger generation being being the open, loving, um, less conservative generation thought that they should do bi- illegal business with all types of people. And they were known as the Young Turks. All lives matter, right? Right, exactly. Um, so this approach led... Um, his followers to question whether Masseria was even capable of making the mafia prosper in the modern times because he was still part of that mustache Pete generation. Um, Okay. So led by Luciano, the aim of this group was to end, was to end the war as soon as possible. The young Turks were trying to end the war as soon as possible. Um, in order it should be the goal of any war. Right. The goal of the war should be to end it as quickly as possible. Um, but really, it was so they could resume their business and start making money again. So, oh, yeah. it's not like they were tired of the infighting. They just needed money, which I get. Um, he, uh, Luciano also felt very strongly that it was time to modernize the mob and do away with the, like, orthodox norms of that, like, secret r- ritual that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Fraternity initiation. Right. There was a vision that enabled him. This was a vision, rather, that enabled him to attract followers who'd seen uh, Masseria as inadequate um, and that his leadership was overly traditionalist. Mm. So both factions were kind of fluid and many mobsters were like switching sides or killing their own allies during the war. And you never knew who was like a basically a double agent. Yeah. Um. So the war starts to become more violent and gunmen start clashing on the streets of New York. According to Joe Bananas in February, 1930, Masseria supposedly ordered the death of Gaspar Milazzo, a, um, a native from that Castilla Mores region, region, mm-hmm. um, who was the president of Detroit's chapter of the Sicilian mafia. Okay. Um, Masseria had reportedly been humiliated by Milazzo's refusal to support him in a dispute involving the Chicago outfit in Al Capone. So <sighs> this guy was like, mostly he was just sticking out of it. Milazzo was like, look, I'm not not supporting you. I'm just hiding. Yeah. And so he had him killed. Um, you're right. Makes sense. Yeah, like you do. So, um, However, that was not kind of, that was not like the, the shot heard around the mafia. Um, that actually belonged to. Shot uh, heard around the mafia. <laughs> on February 26th, 1930, Masseria ordered the murder of an ally, um, Gitano Reina. Mm-hmm. So Masseria gave the job to um, Genovese, who killed Reina with a shotgun. His intent was to protect his secret allies, um, Tommy Galliano, 
Tommy Lucese, get you friends who all have the same first name. That's what I'm learning from this. Sure. And Dominic the Gap Patrilli. And I choose to believe Hold that's because his two teeth grew apart. Get your friends who all have the same first name. I've been doing that forever now. I know you have. But they were the OG. Yeah, but their names were Tommy, so. <laughs> so, um, so this, this murder of Gitano Reyna is actually what, um, was kind of the turning point. Um, the Reyna family then threw its support behind Maranzano, even though they had been on the side of Maseria. Um, so on August 15th, 1930, the loyalists to, uh, Maranzano's party, um, killed one of Maseria's enforcers, Giuseppe Morello, at his office. And two weeks later, Maseria, um, or Reina, the Reina family murdered Maseria's, um, his associate, Joseph Penzolo, who'd taken over, like, his ice distribution racket. Um... I don't know. Ice distribution was so lucrative. Uh, Yeah. Sure. Um, So I I guess maybe in the thirties. Right. We had like an actual ice box. Right. Exactly. Um, So on September 9th, the Reina family shoots and kills Benzolo at his off at an office rented by Lucese or Lucese. Um, And after these two murders, the Reina crew officially joined forces with the Maranzanos. So then that builds this faction, like basically doubles it in size. Mergers and acquisitions, baby. Exactly. So, um, Maseria strikes back. Um, Maranzano's ally, Joey uh, Aiello, that I mentioned earlier, he um, was murdered in Chicago. Um, and then that just pissed off tons of people because they weren't trying to involve the Chicagoites. Like... <laughs> That we didn't try. He doesn't to, even go here, right? We wanted, <laughs> we didn't want to make this transcontinental. We just wanted to deal with New York. Like, why are you bringing them over right. here? So, um, so at this point, um, many of Maseria's allies thought that he'd gone too far, and so they also jump to Maranzano's faction. So he's losing numbers left and right. <sighs> um, mm-hmm. So eventually, uh, Maseria. Oh, Maseria's allies, Luciano and Genovese, start communicating with Maranzano um, as kind of a double agent status. And the two men agree to betray Maseria if Maranzano promises to end the war. So um, a deal is struck based on which uh, Luciano would arrange Maseria to be murdered and Maranzano could bring the war to an end. Okay. So on April 15th, 1931, Maseria was killed uh, in, at a restaurant in Coney Island. While they were playing cards, Luciano excuses himself to the bathroom. And then um, gunmen came in while he was in the bathroom. And they were um, reportedly um, Anastasia, Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. And they gunned wow. down... Maseria. That's one big name. Well, that's a few big names there I've heard before. But uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, the leaders of the five families plus a couple friends came in. <laughs> um, so, Maranzano, like I mentioned, then set up the, uh, the five families and he declared himself the boss of all bosses. However, declaring himself the boss of all bosses broke a deal that he'd made with Lucky Luciano in which mm-hmm. the gangsters agreed that they would all be equals in exchange for Luciano agreeing to help murder Maseria. Um, 
so for reneging on the uh, like on this promise, Maranzano was murdered on September tenth, nineteen thirty one, on Luciano's orders. <laughs> so the boss of all bosses position was then eliminated in favor of the commission. Okay. And the commission is the the setup that we know and love today. <laughs> Yes. Um, so the commission consisted of the head of each of the five families, plus the heads of the Buffalo crime family and of the Chicago outfit. Okay. Um, so the council would serve as the governing body of the American mafia, settle which settled disputes, including like demarcating territory. Um, so they kind of redrew the maps of which families controlled which areas. Okay. And so that leads us into kind of the history of the Mangano family, which then became the Gambino family. Um, the Gambino crime family can be traced back to the faction of new transplants of mafiosi from Palermo, Sicily. Um, and they were originally led by a man named Ignazio Lupo, also known as Lupo the Wolf. Okay. Um, when he and his partner by business and marriage, Giuseppe Morelli, so like his brother-in-law, who he was also doing illegal things with, Morello, sorry, mm-hmm. were sent to prison for counterfeiting, um, Salvatore Toto Daquila, who was one of Lupo the Wolf's chief captains, took over. Uh, Daquila was actually influential, um, like he was very influential among their faction and then other factions as well. Okay. Um... So he, let's see, he joined the Lupo gang that was based in East Harlem. Uh, I was going somewhere with that and then I decided not to, but I didn't delete that sentence. So now I'm having to catch back up. Um, so Lupo the Wolf was the original Capo di Tutti Capi. He was the original boss of all bosses, which is kind of the reason that the Gambino family is so renowned today because they were the original, like, heads of everything. Okay. Um, So then Dequila took that position whenever, um, just, uh, no, when Lupo the Wolf was in prison. Um, So the problem is... As other gangs formed in New York, they all acknowledged Morello, Lupo's best friend, brother-in-law situation, as Mm -hmm. the boss of all bosses. So, um, just to kind of speed this up in a timeline situation. So that's kind of the very first origins. Those are the first few leaders. Right. Just so you can kind of follow that timeline. So in 1911, um, Dequila succeeds his boss who sent away to prison in 1909 tequila eventually also absorbs alfred almaneo manfredi's brooklyn-based crew and makes him his underboss then tequila absorbs the remnants of the brooklyn camora into his own family so he's absorbing all these like broken i almost said tribes all these broken factions left and right mm-hmm <laughs> In 1928, Alfred Manfredi, who was the um, the original leader of the Brooklyn crew that he brought in, becomes boss after Tequila is killed on the orders of Joe Masseria, the man who started the whole war that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. In 1930, Manfredi, so two years later, Manfredi is gunned down on the orders of Maranzano. Um, and Frank Scalice, a Maranzano supporter, becomes the boss. Scalice is ordered to step down by Luciano, 
And Vincent Mangano becomes the boss of the newly formed Mangano crime family. So this is when they've set up the five families and named them officially from their first new boss. Okay. Um, so uh, Vincent Mangano actually uh, runs things for 20 years until he just disappears. Okay. Uh-huh. So Mangano disappears, presumably murdered by the underboss Albert the Executioner Anastasia. Um, with commission support, Anastasia then becomes the boss, and the family assumes his name. So between Mangano and Gambino, they are then known as the Anastasia family. Okay. Um, so Vito Genovese, who was the underboss of the Luciano family, believed that Anastasia had broken a cardinal mafia rule by murdering Mangano. But war is avoided between the two gangs due to the efforts of Joe Bananas. And Genovese <laughs> still resents Anastasia, though, and um, Genovese would cultivate the sympathies of Anastasia's underboss, Carlo Gambino. Okay. So six years later, Anastasia is assassinated by gunmen. And um, so somehow, I know this is going to surprise you, Gambino, who'd been in cahoots with Genovese, becomes the prime suspect for orchestrating the murder. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Lies. No. So Gambino takes over as boss and the family assumes his name. Um, so nine years later, Gambino dies of a heart attack. Before his death, he names his brother-in-law and cousin. I'm going to, I had to read that again. <laughs> he names his brother-in-law and cousin, Big Paul Costellano, his successor, passing over his underboss, Agnello Della Croce. Who, imprisoned, who was imprisoned for tax evasion at the time. And these okay. are all the names that were in play whenever John Gotti appears. Because Big Paul Cost, Cost, Castellano, there it is, is the one that gets gunned down so that Gotti can replace him. And I actually have information leading up to 2019, but since this is about Gotti, that's where I'm going to stop. In 1990, uh, 1985, I mean. So the mafia hierarchy works like this. Like at the bottom there, the associates. Mm-hmm. They're connected, but they're not made men, meaning okay. they've not been entrusted with carrying out a hit yet. Right. Above them are the soldiers and then captains. Then there's an advisor and then the underboss. And above them all sits the boss. Okay. And if a captain wants to unseat the boss by whacking him, he's supposed to go in front of the mafia commission and present a case to get this action approved. Okay. Um, John Gotti did not do any of those things. Cool. He just consolidated his power by winning the allegiance of a few of the Gambino captains, along with a couple of the bosses from other crews. So then on December 16th, 1985, he sends four assassins to Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan to gun down Paul Castellano. Yes. Undercover FBI agent Joe Pistone considered this to be one of the most brazen and best organized hits in the history of the mob because John Gotti is sitting down in like five o'clock rush hour. Like do this where everyone can see. And I know you're surprised because Gotti was such a secretive person. Shocked. Right. I mean, he, he was, I mean, no, nobody's ever seen his face. I know. (laughs) So Gotti was 
of course, nicknamed the Dapper Don for his expensive tailored suits and diamond pinky ring and monogram socks and the pompadour he was known for. And then he was later known as the Teflon Don for three high profile, nope, three high profile trials that failed to make any charges stick. The first of which was in 1986 underneath prosecutor Diane F. Giacalone. Badass extraordinaire Esquire. So now we're from the origins of the five families to this movie. You're so welcome. I just gave you an in-depth history lesson, all of you. Yay. Um, so enter Diane Giacalone. So Diane is an assi- was an assistant U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, and she was the first to pursue John Gotti on the... Um, for RICO, which is the 1970 Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. So here and out, I will call it RICO. Okay. I don't know that I say it again, but I may. Um, so somehow, surprisingly, and I, I know it's going to confuse you. It confused me. This earned her the hatred of John Gotti. No way. Yeah. Like all she was he trying to do like was... like a really like even keeled, calm... Right. Just laid back dude. Right. I can't believe he would hate anybody. I know. It's shocking. It's, it's shocking. Um, it also, however, earned her the hatred of the FBI, specifically the group known as the Gambino Squad, which was the force tasked with taking down John Gotti. Um, Fuck those people. However, in 1997, the leader of this squad was indicted on charges of stealing more than $400,000, including at least no. $104,000 the FBI had taken from mob money. Mm. Um, so maybe they should have spent less time being worried about the DA and who was like actually doing her job and maybe more time worried about, I don't know, their boss who clearly was not. Mm. No, it's projection. Right. Right. So, um, Jacqueline was born in Ozone, pa- Ozone Park, Queens, which is the neighborhood mm-hmm. that Gotti would later make his home base. Yes. On her way to school each day, she would walk past several, what were called social clubs where seemingly jobless men sat outside and they'd catcall to her as she passed all the time. Um, one writer compared her looks to Lily Tomlin. So just to kind of give you an idea of what she looked like. Um, so um, one of these clubs was rumored to be the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club, which I don't know if you remember us talking about that in the other Gaudy movie. But yes. that was the headquarters of the Gambino crime family. Mm-hmm. So it is believed that the taunts and sexual harassment that she endured growing up fueled her desire to seek revenge, which she channeled into attacking Gotti. Hmm. Um, so I don't know about that. <laughs> throughout the course of the investigation, many felt that the FBI had sandbagged Jackaloni, refusing to offer up valuable information, and eventually the agency just pulled its agents off her task force altogether. Mm-hmm. So, um, on the, on the case, the FBI argued with Giacalone about two major reports or two major points, rather. Um, they felt that her case was weak and they felt that a witness she planned on calling would never testify against Gotti. So she learned that Willy Wonka boy Johnson who was a close acquaintance and murder accomplice of Gotti had been an informant of the FBI for many years. Um, Mm -hmm. He never though in any of his informing implicated Gotti in anything. Huh? So she, 
she figured that if he was on the stand and she revealed his role as an FBI informant, he'd be forced to testify against Gotti in exchange for protection. Right. And the FBI argued that he would never voluntarily risk his life that way. And um, they were right. He did not aid in the prosecution. And Gotti still had him killed for not participating. Because he was an informant. Yeah. So, um... We've seen that meme that's like, I could never be in the mob. Like, um, oh, what is it? It's something like, I don't want, I don't know, maybe a craft. She's like, oh, I could never be in the real mob. Maybe a craft mob. And then it's like, blows glittering her eye. Never go against the family. Yes. <laughs> so this infighting between Giacalone and the FBI grew really intense one of the agents told her one day, you know, if you were a man, I'd knock you on your ass. <laughs> but Diane Giacalone, being the badass that she is, jumped up from behind her desk with her fist raised and said, okay, let's go at it right now. Come on. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> she refused to back down both against the FBI and against the Gaudi case. And mm-hmm. um, her friends often described her as unflappable and that like you were never going to see her emotional response, that she was logical in everything she did. Mm-hmm. So, um, the trouble with the FBI was actually nothing compared to the Gotti, to Gotti's defense team. So once they finally get to the actual trial, first of all, Gotti is outraged that a woman was the prosecutor on his case. And he flat out says, I guarantee you no girl is ever going to put us in jail. We'll make her cry. We'll bury her. We'll buy her jury. Whatever it takes. (laughs) Sorry. We'll make her cry. We'll buy her jury. Whatever the fuck it takes, guaranteed she'll put us she'll never put us in jail. So he's like mostly pissed that there's a woman on his case. Aw. Deal with it. I know. Sweet fragile masculinity. I know, poor BB. Um, so Giacalone endured an unprecedented amount of harassment, and the writer of this book said he has never found another instance where somebody was harassed as much as she was in the courtroom. Good grief. Um, Gotti's defense baited her by calling her things like the dragon lady and the lady in red because she wore like red power suits while she was Mm -hmm. in the room. Um, And then Gotti and his associates referred to her as little red riding hood and like, like calling out in the middle of the trial, like, uh Oh, little red riding hoods up again, like bullshit like that. At one point in the trial, um, Giacalone pointed her finger at one of the defense attorneys and called him a liar because, I mean, he'd flat out, like, lied in the middle of the thing. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't even, like, aggressive. She just pointed and was like, you're a liar. You need to take that back or whatever. Right. And he said, you can take your finger out of my face and stick it up your ass. Wow. And the chief Gotti lawyer made comments regularly such as, quote, see if the tramp will offer us some proof. Uh-huh. What the fuck? Okay. Giacalone used tape recordings of wiretaps and bugged conversations to try to convince the jury that Gotti was in fact in charge of the mafia's largest crime family. But the defense argued that the crime families did not even exist, that they were a work of fiction. Like, there's no such thing. Sure, Jan. Right? Um, during the trial, she called... No less than 78 witnesses. Cool. Um, she warned the jury that they were horrible people and then talked about how, like, their involvement with organized crime and just, like, 
yes, you're going to listen to the testimony of murderers and thieves and racketeers. You know, like, she just kind of gave them a heads up. So the defense was like, so, Jacqueline couldn't even find a real... Uh, a real witness so she had to go get these murderers who you know all they want is to get out of jail faster so are you actually going to listen to them um and ripped them apart because they're criminal records um so they painted a picture of all the wrong things the witnesses had ever done and not surprisingly since john Gotti was the only person who knew everything they'd done the the defense could tell you everything these people had ever done um, one of the witnesses even admitted, admitted that he was only there to save his own ass. The defense referred to this collection of witnesses as the prosecutor's crime family. So they would get up and they're like, you know, you're trying to listen to a case against this alleged Gambino crime family, but no one's looking at the prosecutor's crime family. Yes, that eye roll is exactly how I felt. Um... So, Jacqueline w- was forced, in fact, to drop one witness, Matthew Trainer. Trainer was a longtime friend of Gotti. He was a drug dealer, a bank robber, and a con- convicted perjurer. And he was doing time for a bank robbery and agreed to testify in return for a reduced sentence. Um, however, Jacqueline caught him in a lie and had to drop him from the case. So instead, he contacted the defense and offered to tell things about Jacqueline. He testified that she had given him drugs so he would lie about Gotti. This and, is Hannibal Nutbag? Uh-huh. Okay. And that she kept him uh, high all the time. And then he said once when they were working together, he was stoned and he told her that he, quote, needed to get laid. And she, quote, gave me her panties out of her bottom drawer and told me to facilitate myself. She said, make do with these. I, no. I wish I could no. show that face that you just made. No. I'm Hold sometimes on. very I'm just sad. Gonna finish, finish this. Sometimes very sad that this is not a visual medium. Um, no. I mean, look, if you look at our Instagram, just go to the post that I put up the other day from the Amanda Knox trial and look at her face. That's what my face looks like 99% of the time. Yep. <laughs> So, needless to say, the jury did not vote in favor of Jackaloni. I know, I'm shocked No too. way! Sources later said that Gotti had bought one juror who later bullied the rest into acquittal. Gotti and all of his associates, including Willy Wonka Boy Johnson, were found not guilty on all counts. And then mm-hmm. in the congratulatory hugging at the end, Gotti pointed at Diane Jackaloni and her team, declaring, Shame on them. I'd like to see the jury's verdict on these two. Then John Gotti left out a back door to avoid media and left with the nickname the Teflon Don. Very interested in the fact that he avoided the media. That tells me more than anything. A else. lot of the rest. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So Jacqueline never made public, like never made public bitter or angry comments about um, about this case, and she took the loss like a pro. Sometime later, though, she did quit prosecution and went on to a legal position with the Transit Authority. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, in 1992, Gotti was found guilty of a laundry list of cl- crimes and sentenced to life. Um, Bye. And then, quote, the dawn is covered with Velcro, said James Fox, director of the New York City FBI, 
and all the charges stuck. Gotti died in prison ten years later. Just going, like, going back to last year when we covered the Victoria Gotti movie. It's so odd how he could be so different. Uh Uh-huh. Because if you look at it from his family's or his children's point of view, you see a whole different person than this, like, guy. Yeah. And it's also interesting how the truth is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, because I bet he was somewhere in the middle. I yeah. Mean, I mean, he was an awful human being who had lots of people killed and all that. But I bet the way he presented himself, he was somewhere in between the two versions that yeah. we've looked at so far. Well, it's interesting to, you know, you talk about relationships where, you know, abusive relationships where it's not all bad all the time. Uh-huh. And it's like that. Like, he, he couldn't have been a completely sadistic monster all the time, but he also couldn't have been, like, loving, wonderful dad all the time. Right. And then I also think, too, about things that had been going on in his life, like the death of his child and all of these other things. And it makes me wonder, like, how the timelines stack up and, and what... Right. He was dealing with when all this stuff was going on. Right. It's really, really, he's a very complex character. Wolf. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Well, that is, I hope we never do another gaudy case because I don't know that I can come up with any more information to tell you all this time. Shoot. I don't either. I, I mean, I don't know what other Gotti. We, I'm, well, I'm sure. I'm sure there. I'm just gonna say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there's more to cover, but I'm sure there is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's no way you, we've covered all of it. There's no way we've covered a third of it. Yeah. It's um, wild, man. Well, do you have a lifetime movie of the week? Well, I do, but you're gonna have to go to our Patreon and listen to it. Not this week, but next week. Oh man. It's good. I'm excited. I'm teasing it. We're gonna you're gonna hear it a little bit, but right, right. No, I'm excited. That's awesome. It's 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 a good one. My friend said it to story and I was like, what in the fuck is this? Well, my lifetime movie of the week is entitled Mexit and <laughs> And I'm leaving. Look, I guarantee you Lifetime's already snapped this up and they're working on it. I guarantee you. No, they have. They've done two already. They're, they are working on it already. I promise. All right. And, well. And I hate her. The end. That's all I've got for this week. What are we watching yeah. next week? Actually, next week we are watching the premiere of... Oh man, hold on. It's the Kamaya. Kamaya. Oh, the kidnapped. Kamaya Mobley. Um, so yeah. taken by stolen my by mother. my mother. Stolen by stolen my mother. mother. Mm hmm. That premieres next Saturday, so we're going to cover that on Sunday. Beautiful. So follow us on the Twitter and I'll live tweet it. So Yes, please do. Aaron's hilarious. Oh, thank you. I am not. God, does it give it both hands? That's 
right? Because I am beautiful. Mm-hmm. You're the funny one, and I'm the pretty one, and I waited my whole life for that to be the case. <laughs> all right well have a good night oh you too before we go oh don't oh. forget to follow us in fact on twitter at life sentence pod and on instagram at lifetime sentence mm-hmm. on facebook at facebook.com slash lifetime sentence um you can find show notes and other things on our website at lifetime sentence.com and then join us on Patreon, where you'll get to hear me tell a very wild story. Patreon.com slash Lifetime Sentence. It's going to be a good one. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Uh-huh. Um, well, until next time, don't forget to eat your vegetables. It's important. Oh, I have a new one. So we're going to eat our vegetables. We're going to charge our phones. And we're going to dick punch the patriarchy. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was not prepared for that one. And... Um, I will start wearing a cup just in case I get confused. Um, I'm not the patriarchy. Well, but... I, I know I'm not. But so <laughs> did I ever tell you about whatever I accidentally got caught up in the Women's March in New York? No. So the first time I played. By accidentally, you mean on purpose. Yes. The first time I played Carnegie Hall, we were, the first rehearsal was. Team drop. <laughs> was during um, the Women's March in New York. The yeah. cab couldn't get us to our hotel because uh-huh. the avenue was closed that we had to go across to get to our hotel. And so he had to drop us off and we had to walk through the starting of the um, Women's March. And so it was accidental just because we didn't expect that to be the Women's March in the yeah. middle of where we're going. And I kept getting yelled at and jostled. And <laughs> I was like, I swear I'm not the problem. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm a school teacher. My wife's a doctor. I support you. Like- <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> okay. So, all right. With that, do all the things we just mentioned. Have a good yes. night. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>